Well, good morning. How are you doing today? Uh, good morning to you online and in Medina as well. Uh, so a few months ago in the beginning of the year, and can you believe it's already May, by the way? Like this year is flying by. Uh, but in the beginning of the year, I, I was just kind of like I typically do, doing a little bit of an inventory, um, thinking about things such as my reputation, uh, reputation that I had, reputation that I was building, and then uh, the reputation I hope to have one day. And as I'm thinking about these things, it occurred to me that there's one thing that I'll never have the reputation of. No matter how hard I try, I'll just never have the reputation of this, and that is the reputation of being a tough guy. Now, I'll be 33 in August, but I know I have the biceps of a middle schooler, the face of a high schooler, and the legs of a chicken. Uh, so there's not a whole lot about my physical appearance that screams, tough guy. Uh, I've never been asked by a friend to accompany them in a fight. I've never been in a fight myself. I I'd rather talk over our feelings, uh, over coffee, and just like work it out that way. Um, but just to prove to you that looks can be deceiving, uh, many, many years ago, Danielle and I, we were first married, and we were running a few errands, and uh, we had our dog in the car with us, and we stopped at Tops. Uh, it was just a quick errand. We weren't getting a lot of stuff, just picking up a couple things. So uh, Danielle, she stayed in the car while I went in to grab the items. And while I'm in there, she texts me, and she says, uh, Brian, could you please hurry? There's these guys in, uh, in a truck that's in the parking lot, and they keep shouting things at me, and they're, uh, they're just making me a little nervous. Uh, so I put down the items. It, it wasn't like I wasn't we were in any rush to get these things. So I was like, I, I could go back another day. So I start to head towards the exit when uh, she calls me and she says, Brian, they're, they're really freaking me out. One of the guys is approaching the car. So at this point, I'm like jogging towards the exit. Um, our, we had parked right in the front, like the first spot. So as soon as I came out of tops, I could see the car and I saw this guy approaching the car. And uh, at this point, remember, all I know is that my wife is really freaked out. Uh, she doesn't know what he's approaching the car for. So as soon as I come out of, the, out of tops, I yell at the top of my lungs and in the most intimidating voice possible, I say, Hey, get away from my wife! Tough, right? <laughs> this guy, he turns around, he pulls out a machete... I'm just kidding. There's a <laughs> but he turns around, and he, his face is red. My face is red. And he's going, dude, dude, I'm, I'm so sorry. He goes, your, your dog looks just like my dog that passed away last week. And I wanted to see if they were in the same litter. I was like, well, get away from my... No, I'm, I, I was like, I, I, like, obviously, I'm super embarrassed at this point. And then the worst part is he, he goes, is your name Brian? <laughs> Do, do we work together? Do you work at M&T Bank? We both worked at M&T Bank in the same department, but it was a big department. I didn't know him, but apparently he knew me. Um, so, uh, th yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. For the next, like, couple years, I see him in the break room all the time. He goes, hey, Brian, remember me? It's like, yep, I remember you. Um, the moral of the story is don't mess with my wife because this chicken-legged pastor can and will throw down if needed. <laughs> But I, I think that's probably true for most people, right? We can be really peaceful, calm, uh, the most peaceful person on the planet. But if a loved one is threatened, uh, it's going to bring out a different side of us. 
right? Whether it's a spouse, a child, or whatever, it will reveal a different side of us. And I don't think that's a bad side, by the way. Uh, I think we should protect the innocent and the helpless. Uh, I think we should uh, seek justice when justice is needed. Uh, I listened to a pastor one time who was a retired Navy SEAL. And what he did is he would go on missions trips with other retired SEALs into ISIS territory to rescue children who were in slavery. That is a picture of Jesus. Just as much a picture of Jesus as it is to feed the poor and to help out in food pantries and stuff like this. The pictures look very different, but they are both the hands and feet of Jesus. But if we're being honest, that's not always the picture that we have when we think of Jesus. When we think of who he was, what he did, uh, I think for all of us, we, we have different pictures in our, our mind of who Jesus was. And I think we've all formed our views a little differently as well. Uh, I wrote down a few ways I think we form our views of Jesus. Here's just a few of them that I wrote down. The first is church experience. Our church background will help shape how we view Jesus. For example, if we were first introduced to Jesus in a church that we thought was boring and irrelevant, we might think that Jesus is boring and irrelevant. If we were first introduced to Jesus in a church that focused only on the grace and mercy of Jesus but never had the hard conversations and talked about the hard truths and talked about things like sin, we might view Jesus as a a God who doesn't really care about what we do. Some of us, when we think about Jesus, we just think about a man who walked around with long hair and sandals and a robe and just taught people and things like that. And that's true, but it's also incomplete of who he was. Maybe you were first introduced to Jesus in a church that taught uh, what's called the prosperity gospel, meaning that uh, the, the, the closer we are to God, the more healthy and wealthy and successful and happy we'll be in life. And if that's our view of Jesus, I mean, honestly, he might look more like a genie in a bottle to us than the God of the universe. If we were first introduced to Jesus at a church that taught the fire and brimstone method, your view of Jesus might, look, uh, might focus more on the judgment of God rather than the grace of God. Uh, you might just think that Jesus is sitting on a throne in heaven waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you. Uh, honestly, this was kind of the view I had for a long time of Jesus. I, I carried around a lot of shame and guilt because I... I thought that Jesus' love for me was more based on my performance and uh, how much I sinned or didn't sin that week. So our view of Jesus can be formed from past church experience. Uh, The second way is this, is arts and media. Uh, It might seem silly, but I think it's true that the way that Jesus is portrayed in paintings and in movies and maybe even sculptures uh, can have a lasting impact on how we view Jesus. Uh, I I just typed in Jesus on Google image search just to see what came up. And here's a few examples. Uh, This is a famous painting, uh, but it's also like a very peaceful Jesus. And uh, it's just like not necessarily someone I would want to hang out with, I don't know. I don't think. Um, This this is like farming Jesus. I I love this. I'm sure Jesus held a lamb at some point in his ministry. Um, But again, this could shape our view of Jesus. This one I, I think is really funny, this next one. This is like if Jesus was gluten-free from California and still lived in his parents' basement. This is, I think, what, what Jesus <laughs> would look like. And 
This is like the most white American Jesus I've seen. It's interesting how sometimes when we do this with scripture too, we can Americanize scripture and Christianity, and we do that with Jesus. I'm just telling you, this isn't what Jesus looked like. He was a Hebrew boy from the Middle East. Um, but again, uh, the art and media, it can have a lasting impact on how we view who Jesus was. Um, so church experience, art, media, and here's a third one I wrote down, is how we were introduced to the Bible. Uh, did you know, it, and you've probably seen people do this, it's possible to make almost any point you want to using a single verse of Scripture. Uh, it's why it's so important to understand the context of what we're reading, not just the verse, but like who the verse was written to, why the verse was written, who was writing the verse. Um, but understanding the context of Scripture is very difficult. Uh, the, the Bible is composed of 66 different books, uh, each one written for a different purpose to a different audience, some of them more poetry, some of them more history, some of them uh, stories of Jesus' life, some of them letters written to different churches. Uh, it's written by over around 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years. Uh, so it's no wonder that this, this book is very difficult to fully understand the context of. Uh, not only that, but it's written in uh, two different languages, languages that we don't speak. So our English translations can make it a little difficult. It, there's a lot of hard work required to fully understand the context of everything we read. And not to mention the fact that some of the writers just wrote in very confusing ways. So depending on how we were introduced to the Bible or if we've only read small portions of it, it can have a large impact on how we view Jesus. If you grew up only reading the Old Testament, your view of Jesus is going to be different than if you grew up only reading the New Testament. So uh, church experience, art, media, the Bible, the, the, those are just three small ways that can influence our views of Jesus. And there's probably dozens more of how our views have been shaped over the years. But the reality is, is when you and I, when we picture Jesus, it's very possible we are picturing completely different people, two completely different gods, or not only that, but it's possible that our images of Jesus that we have in our minds just are incomplete. Now, for the past uh, month, we've been in this series called Who is Jesus? And the big idea uh, of the series simply is, is that who we say Jesus is, is the most important thing about ourselves. The answer to the question, the same question that Jesus asked his disciples, uh, who do you say that I am, is the most important thing about ourselves. Not only does it affect our life here on earth, but as Christians, we believe it affects our eternity as well. And again, as after maybe hundreds of conversations with different people about Jesus, it's very apparent that we have different views and, uh, again, that some have incomplete views of who he was. Uh, I find it interesting that the Bible uses several metaphors to describe Jesus. Uh, I think the Bible uses so many metaphors because no single metaphor can fully encompass everything Jesus was. No single metaphor for Jesus is perfect. Uh, one single metaphor, I think, just falls incomplete to describe Jesus. I mean, some of us, we see Jesus as all-powerful, but we don't see him as all-loving. Or maybe you say it the opposite. You see him as all-loving, but not necessarily powerful enough to affect our circumstances. 
Some of us, we see him as all-knowing, but not as all-compassionate. Some of us see him as king, but not as how he came to be as servants or vice versa. We might see him only as servant, but not as the king that he is. And uh, I want to look at just two metaphors this morning and talk about what they mean in our life. Uh, so the question of, to wrap up the series, who is Jesus? The last question is, who is Jesus? Is he the lion or the lamb? Uh, just in case you fall asleep before the end, I'll give you the answer now. Uh, he is both, see all of the above. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Uh, maybe the clearest example in scripture uh, is found in Revelation chapter 5. Uh, Revelation is a, it's the last book of the Bible. It's a book written by the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus. And it's, it's full of visions and prophecies about the final chapters of what God is going to do on earth. And one of the visions is recorded in chapter 5 of Revelation. Uh, so this is John talking. He says, in the vision, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, we'll talk about that in a second, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now, uh, that's, that scroll, scholars describe this as basically the deed to the earth uh, or symbolic of uh, the final chapters of what God was going to do on earth. And uh, in order for those final chapters to take place, someone had to open the scroll. Uh, but John says no, like it, it didn't seem like anyone was worthy to open the scroll and he begins to weep. And then in verse 5, then one of the elders said, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Uh, now, we could, we could do a whole message or probably even a series on these two terms, lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Uh, but what we need to know for today is these are clear references to the Messiah. We have to look at this from a, a first century Jew perspective. These two terms, they instantly would have associated with the Messiah, with Jesus. So John is told, look, the Lion of Judah. John, he turns to look at the Lion of Judah, and this is what he sees. It says, then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. He went, took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So here in this one passage, we see Jesus as the Lion and the Lamb. And he takes the scroll as the lamb and he opens it. And the, if you read the rest of Revelation, it's the unfolding of the final chapters. But who is Jesus? Again, he is the lion and the lamb. Uh, let's talk about what this means for us. And uh, let's start with the metaphor, Jesus as lamb. Uh, so several years ago, we had an actual lamb here at church. Uh, I don't remember why necessarily, uh, but the Kelkenbergs who live in town, a lot of you know, uh, they lent us a lamb. Uh, I love Akron, by the way. Only in Akron can you borrow a lamb from someone. Um, but if you might remember, we had a, it wasn't a dumpster, but it looked like a dumpster. It was a recycling bin. Uh, some of you still threw your trash in there anyways. But we had a, this recycling bin in the parking lot, and um, we had it there for years. It's not there anymore. Uh, but they had dropped the lamb off early in the morning, and they tied the lamb to this dumpster-looking thing. 
and I get to church, and I always park in the back corner where the dumpster was, and I completely forgot that we were going to have a live animal there that day. You, you could see where this is going. So I get out of, out of my car. I'm here nice and early. I, I kind of glance at the sunrise, take a sip of my coffee, a nice deep breath. It's a peaceful morning. When all of a sudden this live animal runs around the corner right at me. I thought I was going to die in this moment, but luckily it was tied uh, to a rope. And it gets to the end of the rope and like the rope catches it. It survived. The lamb is now dead, but it, it survived this moment. The, the Kalkenbergs told me the lamb died recently. So anyways, we can mourn the lamb l- later. Uh, it runs right at me. And then it just stares me down for a while. And I, like I had a mini heart attack in this moment. Like it scared me. Um, but it wasn't the lamb that scared me. It was the element of surprise. It could have been a toddler running around and it still would have scared me and got my heart rate going. But it, it was the element of surprise. Once I realized that it was a lamb and a lamb that was tied to a dumpster, like I, I, I was fine because let's be honest, lambs are not the most intimidating animal. And I find it interesting that a lamb is the most common metaphor in the New Testament for Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament alone, Jesus is referred to as the lamb 104 times. Jesus, the lamb of God. I think the first question we should ask is, why would the writers of the New Testament refer to Jesus as a lamb? Uh, Let's look at one of the most famous uses of this term. Uh, So this is written by the same John, one of the apostles, but he's describing John the Baptist. So the next day, John the Baptist, different John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now again, if we look at this verse from a first century Jewish perspective, uh, a lamb played several roles in their tradition one of which was a holiday that dated back to the time of Moses, a holiday called the Passover. Uh, Many of you are familiar with the story, but in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, the people of Israel, they were living in Egypt, but for about 360 years, they were living as slaves to the Egyptians. Uh, There was uh, probably over a million uh, Israelites at this point living in slavery in a foreign land. And Uh, You know the story, Moses would go to Pharaoh, say, let, on behalf of God, let my people go. Pharaoh would refuse, and I mean, the whole Egyptian economy was built on slavery. Uh, So he refuses, God would send a plague on the land of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh would say, okay, your, your people can go to stop the plague. As soon as the plague would stop, Pharaoh would change his mind. And this just repeated over and over, nine times in a row. And then came the 10th plague called the plague of the firstborn. Uh, At midnight, every firstborn son in all of Egypt, uh, whether a a poor family, a a slave family, a royal family, even the firstborn uh, male of livestock was going to die at midnight because of this plague. Uh, God tells Moses to instruct the Israelites. He said to take a lamb, Make it a one-year lamb without any blemish or defect. Slaughter the lamb. Eat the meat of the lamb. And then he gives this kind of weird instruction. He says, then they are to take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they would eat the lambs. 
So when the plague of the firstborn came over Egypt, the plague would literally pass over any home that had the blood of the lamb over the doors. This is why this is so significant, because the lamb took the place of the firstborn. The lamb was the substitute for the firstborn. So when John the Baptist says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's pointing back to one of the most famous moments in Jewish history. The time when a lamb was the fill-in for death. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he he refers to Jesus as our Passover lamb. Uh, Peter referred to Jesus as the lamb without blemish or defect, quoting from Exodus. The first Passover was simply a foreshadowing of what was to come. So the first Passover was death passing over the homes of the Israelites with the blood of the lamb over the door. And the Israelites at that point, they were commanded to to celebrate this annually, to celebrate the feast of the Passover, where they would uh, hold this feast in remembrance of the time when the plague passed over the Israelites' homes. And as Christians, we're commanded to do something similar, to remember Jesus' death and resurrection, really the second Passover through a similar celebration through communion which we're going to take in just a few moments uh and first before we get to that though, i want to take a look at the second metaphor uh, because like we said earlier any single metaphor for jesus just falls short and i'll show you how in a second so the lamb of god is a great and it's an accurate picture but it's only a partial picture the second metaphor i want to talk about is jesus as lion now when you think of lion uh what I mean, think about the things that typically come to mind. Uh, I know for me, I think uh, an animal of power, uh, fierceness, strength. Uh, I think king, because I was told that lions were the king of the jungle, right? Even though lions don't live in the jungle, (laughs) they live in the savanna, so we were lied to as kids. Uh, But as a dad of a toddler, I I can't think of a lion without thinking of what movie? Lion King. Uh, Lion King, it's almost 30 years old, by the way. It came out in 1994. Uh, It was remade just a couple years ago. And uh, just to quickly refresh your memory of the beginning of the movie, uh, Simba, who is the main character, he was the lion cub, soon to be king, uh, but he was the lion cub. He finds himself stuck in a stampede. Uh, And his father, Mufasa, uh, saves his son, but unfortunately dies in the process. Uh, I love Disney movies, but I hate the fact that the parents always die in the Disney movies. You ever realize that? Like, one, the parents are always dead anyways. Um, there's, so the, Mufasa, he saves his son, sacrificing his life. Um, there's really a, a lot of great biblical parallels in The Lion King. Uh, but here's why I think the lion metaphor is so helpful. Because in the story of the Passover, and even later in Jewish history through the sacrificial system uh, of Old Testament law, the lamb was always passive to what was happening. The lambs used for Passover, uh, they didn't have any say in the matter. The lambs used for the sacrificial system of the law didn't have any say in the matter. They were perfect and they were without blemish, but they were also weak and soft and passive to what was happening. Jesus was not. 
Jesus was anything but passive. Jesus is not just the lamb, but he's also the lion. Jesus knew what was coming. Look at uh, Matthew 26, 53. This is when Jesus uh, was being arrested. Uh, his disciples, they begin to stick up for Jesus, trying to prevent him from being arrested as if Jesus was a victim in this situation. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, meaning about 72,000 angels. By the way, it would take one angel to wipe out an army. And Jesus is saying, at the snap of my fingers, I can call down 12 or 72,000 angels. I'm okay. I'm not a victim in this situation. If you fast forward a little bit, when Jesus was on trial, when you read the text, uh, you can see that Pilate didn't really want anything to do with the conviction of Jesus. But Jesus refused to deny the charges. If he would have, it might have been pretty effective. Because again, it seems as if Pilate was looking for a reason to exonerate Jesus, but he allows the trial to go through, refuses to deny the charges. Jesus was not a pawn. Jesus was not passive. Jesus was not a victim. He was not passive in his sacrifice. He had all the power and strength and ability and authority to not be arrested, to not be tried, to not be convicted, and to not be crucified. But he chose to willingly sacrifice himself to save the world. Let me say it this way. The Lion of Judah willingly became the Lamb of God who gave his life for the world. Why? Because he loves us. And guess what? Jesus is still the Lion and he's still the Lamb. Meaning Jesus is our king who willingly sacrifices life on the cross for our sins. Meaning that when we're feeling weak, the lion of Judah will be our strength. When we're feeling depressed and down and out, Jesus, the lamb of God, will be our joy. When we feel attacked spiritually, the lion of Judah in all of his strength is in our corner. When we feel overwhelmed with shame because of sin, we can be comforted because the Lamb of God already paid for our sin. Jesus is the Lion who willingly became the Lamb for you and for me. Amen? Earlier we talked about Passover, and for centuries after this first Passover, the Israelites, the the Jewish people, would celebrate this with a feast. And again, As Christians, we celebrate a second Passover. We celebrate a more permanent Passover when the blood of the lamb covers our sin, allowing uh, allowing the punishment of sin to pass over us, allowing us to have a relationship with Jesus and eternal life. So we're gonna celebrate communion this morning. So when you came in today, you should have received a cup Uh, with a wafer on top. And if you want to grab that, we'll take it in just a moment. But first, would you pray with me? Father, I, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for these beautiful metaphors that 
that help us to understand who Jesus was. God, I pray that uh, we would just uh, begin to have a complete understanding of Jesus, his, uh, his sacrificial side, but also the, the side of his strength and realize that he was not passive in his decision, that he chose to die for us. So God, today as we celebrate the second Passover, the, the permanent Passover, God, I thank you so much for the gift that we have the blood of the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah. God, we thank you and we worship you this morning. Amen. So at the top of the the cup, there's a wafer. Um, If you're at home, by the way, you can, uh, we would love it if you you take communion. You don't have to have a wafer and juice. It could be anything. Um, But Jesus, the night he was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread, he broke it. And he said, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this represents my blood, which will be shed for you. The blood of the lamb, take and drink this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for everything you are to us. We praise you and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.